opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. The difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. Studies prove that reading to a child regularly dramatically improves reading skills. And kids who read well by third grade are four times as likely to graduate. So United Way is calling for one million volunteers over the next three years. We're asking you to step up, make a pledge, tutor a child who needs help, mentor a kid who needs someone on their side, volunteer to read to children, make a difference. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Entire communities improve. The path to success or failure starts long before graduation day. And the difference between a graduate and a dropout could be you. Be a reader, tutor or mentor, give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge. Go to liveunited.org now. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Now we'll hear Ben playing Mozart's violin concerto. Ben's rendition is awful because he's playing a violin with a banana. But bananas could help you become a better violin player. Eating fruits with potassium and other nutrients help your muscles work better. So when it comes to making music, bananas can be instrumental after all. Run, throw, think, eat better. Can your food do that? Find out at smallstep.gov. That's smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine, and I am very excited about today's guest. Today's guest is Sonny Fox, and if that name sounds familiar, he hosted Wonderama. I grew up in New York, so that show is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, he wasn't hosting when I was little. He hosted in the 60s, and he also did some amazing things. Let me tell you a little bit about him. In his more than eight decades of his life, he has been a prisoner of war in Germany and a war correspondent in Korea. He's taped TV shows in Portugal, Denmark, Finland, Bolivia, and Israel. He has ascended the heights of the television industry as a vice president of NBC TV and chairman of the board of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences and was fired as host of the number one show in the country, the $64,000 Challenge. But throughout all this, he got the funk out and went on to bigger and better things. It's my pleasure to welcome today's show, Sonny Fox. Hi, Sonny. Hi there. How are you today, Janine? Good. How are you? I'm reasonably well and happy to be with you. I'm so glad you could call into the show. People are really excited to have you on. I had a nickel. <laughs> and so, what, the, uh, it'll last about a that couple show, of minutes? By the way, that shows you how old I am, a nickel. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I met you because I was so interested in Wonderama. You weren't hosting when I was little, but, but I was a big fan of the show. And uh, I want to find out, how did you get involved in TV? Oh, you know... <laughs> Read the book. Um, <laughs> I, by, by sheer accident, actually, I'd have to go back to when I graduated high school in uh, James Madison High School in Brooklyn, New York, in January of 1941. Okay. Um, uh, 1942, excuse me, January of 1942. War has just broken out in December 41. I was graduating in the middle of the year instead of in June because I had a pushy mother. We'll go into that later. <laughs> but um, I then matriculated at North Carolina State to study textiles. I was on my way to becoming a textile tycoon, oh. partly because that's what Dad was, not a tycoon, but he was in textiles, mm -hmm. and partly because I had no ambition of my own. So I sort of drifted along. Dad played the violin, I played the violin. Okay. He was in textiles, I'd be in textiles. And I was accepted at North Carolina State, but they would not allow me to begin the term until the following fall in September. So I was faced with six months of sort of a, a, a being in hiatus. But ha, ha, being 16 and a half, I was young when I graduated. But I knew I was going to be drafted into the war, and I didn't want to waste six months just sitting around. So I thought, well, I'll go to NYU and take some credits. And uh, then I'll transfer them, and I did. Uh, but at NYU, I found I was giving courses in radio production and radio writing. I thought, well, these sound like fun. I think I'll try my hand at those. Mm -hmm. And halfway through the term, it occurred to me 
that that's really what I wanted to do. That's great. So the accident, the trifecta that had to happen, A, the war just broke out, which made it urgent not to sit around. B, that my mother had pushed me ahead three times, so I graduated in January, therefore could not enter North Carolina State and see that North Carolina State had that rule. All those three things had to happen for me to even go to NYU for the six months and discover this route. Okay, that's the beginning. Okay. After that, I graduate. I, my first job is with Alan Funt doing, well, I go into the, I go and fight a war in between. And I go back and finish college. Uh, excuse me, Sonny, and Alan I, Funt as in Candid Camera? Yeah, okay. and in 1947, Alan was just starting a thing called Candid Microphone. Mm-hmm. And Candid Microphone was the forerunner of Candid Camera. And Alan hired me and two other people. And for the next year and a half on ABC Radio Network, we produced the weekly show called Candid Microphone. Mm-hmm. And it was the hardest job I've ever had. Why is that? And, uh, well, we were, I was working 80 hours a week. I was getting 35 bucks a week. It was, uh-huh. We were inventing it as we were going along. Sure. By the way, in the first three or four weeks, we didn't even tape on tape. We taped on wire. Uh-huh. And if anybody wants to know how to edit wire, read the book. It's really quite fascinating. Okay. But it was great fun and, and uh, a great start for me in the business. And then I meandered. I entered into the world of, of being a correspondent. I was a correspondent for The Voice of America for two and a half years, the last year of which was covering the war mm-hmm. in Korea. And then I came home with a new bride who had flown over from uh, New York while I was over in doing the Korean thing, and we got married in Japan. Took a long trip around when I quit the VOA. I then we took a long trip around Africa, uh, not Africa, Asia, nice. Near East, and Europe. And I came home with a new bride and no job. <laughs> so somebody told me there was this new thing called educational television starting up, and the new that hadn't gone on the air yet, but there was a station in St. Louis that was looking for a producer and a host of a children's show. I had never been in front of a camera as a performer, had no interest in doing children's television, but I needed a job. Were you nervous? Well, I sent them a note, letter saying, okay, I'll come, you know, I'm interested. And they said, well, come out and we'll audition you. And I said, frankly, I had sent them a note saying, I don't have enough money to fly out. (laughs) And they sent me back and I said, okay, we'll split the cost. So I flew out. And I auditioned. And yes, when that when that thirty five millimeter lens camera came up me for a tight close up and <laughs> sort of pinned me against the backdrop, I would would have cut and run if I could have figured out how to get the hell out of there. Right. When it was over, uh, the man who was in charge of it took me to lunch and he said, "Well, we've had a lot of people audition for this role." I, and he said, "And pretty much all of them have been smoother and glibber than you." And oh, I nice. said, "Why am I not surprised?" <laughs> But he said patiently, whatever it is that uh, you're going to become, I think you're just at the beginning of it, so if you want a job, it's yours. Hence, I became a children's television personality in St. Louis on a a studio that was really a girls' gymnasium that had been converted into a television studio by the simple act of putting plywood on the windows. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. It was it was rudimentary. It was startup time. We it was three months before I even got on the air. We even got on the air, but there I was with forty-five minutes a day to fill, no production budget. I had one assistant. My office was in the kitchen of what had been service area. The, the stoves were still in it. So glamorous. And we and I had no idea what we were going to do. They had no idea what I was going to do. Nobody had any plot line for what I was going to do because nobody had done it. And sure. that's when it's fun. See? Yes. That's when it's really fun. Improv. When nobody can tell you what you can't do because nobody has the vaguest idea of what you can do. Right. So we tried everything that we could. You know, we we, we, we did great, good stuff, silly stuff, stuff that worked, stuff that didn't work. And I was convinced nobody was watching. I was convinced that we probably had no audience at all, or if we had a rating, it was probably slightly higher than the test pattern. Oh, my gosh. But I didn't care. We were happy with, you know, we're living in a four-story four walk-up, and, and we were having a great time. That's great. And, and then I got a phone call, and the phone call, six months after I was on the air, was, went like this. Hello, my name is Ted Sack. I'm a producer of, uh, here at CBS Television. We're going to be starting a new children's series. Would you be interested in hosting it? Now, how did he even know I was there? How did he find me? How did he? Why did they reach out to me? 
that's what see this is why I wanted to um, entitle my book meet me at the crossroads of the impossible <laughs> and the inevitable <laughs> I seem to have lost I seem to have lived my professional life at that crossroads there's a long story you'll read about it in the book about how that happened, how that phone, where that phone call came from. But anyway, so after six months, and by the way, the New Yorker, somebody wrote a poem because what what the station did in St. Louis is they put in an ad seeking my replacement, and in the ad it said, the "Last person who did this after six months was hired away by CBS Television." Look at that. And he wrote a whole thing about this. Where did you wander from for uh, to, for some for plunder? Yonder. It was a wonderful poem based upon that ad. I have that I was, in the book too. I was going to ask but you if you saved it. So, so willy nilly, what I'm it's a long answer to how I got to Wonderama because I then entered into that world of children's programming, which eventually, but not consecutively, because uh, the $64,000 challenge was in there and all those stuff before Wonderama happened. But I functioned best in my entire performing career in the children's area, and I learned more from that than any other experience, because I learned about children. That's great. You had kids at the time, didn't you? Yes, eventually. I had four and started with pregnancy in St. Louis, delivery in New York, mm-hmm. other deliveries in Connecticut, and eventually ended up with four splendid children. Mm, and I nice. uh, learned from them, too, uh, you know, but they, they trained me on how to be a father. But most of all, um, Wonderama became a huge popular television. Every kid in the metropolitan New York area right. watched, and, every, and, and I'm still getting these residuals. But these are not... These are not money residuals. These are the residuals that come from people coming to me and saying, you changed my life, or I remember this part of it. Mm-hmm. it. It is that kind of residual. I've been signing books here at book signings around the country, and when they line up to have books signed, each one has an anecdote, a connective a memory. And it's so amazing, because we're talking 50 years, 40 years ago. Right. And and yet they and I just got an email from one who was that's in back east doing that. He said, explaining why we were they were all there. He said we're all there because we're your kids. Aww. We want to come back to show you how we have grown up and why you were important in our lives. Now there's so no nice. residual that's better than that one. Absolutely, absolutely. You you did have incredible rapport with these kids. I was looking at your website last night, SunnyFoxTV.com. And I love the clip of you talking to the little girl, and you're oh, asking brown who eyes, she is. Little brown eyes, yes. I call her. And you're trying to find out who she is, by the way. So if anybody's listening, I am. I, you know, I haven't gotten that information yet, but I, we we screened that on our reception at Paley, and and I've, I've been showing that around. I tell you why, you've identified what I think is the essence of what made Wonderama work. If you look at it, if anybody looks at it on the website, um, and I and I have it in the book too, it, it's. Now, remember, we're doing this in a studio with hot lights, with three cameras, with all the technicians, with all the kids there in, in, you know, in a television studio. But when you look at that clip between me and Brown Eyes, mm-hmm. all that has dropped away. It's, it's, it's all gone. It's just the world is this young woman of seven and a half and me. And the trust and the bonding yes. and the confidences that are going back and forth, it, you know, that is the essence of what made Wonderama special, I think, because there were other performers on Channel 5 and back in the 60s when I did this show, Soupy Sales, Chuck McCann, Sandy Becker, all enormously talented people who worked very hard at their craft, and the audiences loved them and cheered them, mm-hmm. and properly so. I had no talent. At least no performing talent. I didn't make puppets. I didn't do characters. I didn't throw pies. All I had were the kids. So on my show, the kids were the show. And that's what made it different. And over the period of time, we were able to build up this unique trust that the essence of which is in that clip. I love it. I love it. The funny thing is, and I was laughing out loud, at the end of the clip, when you say, well, I'm going to give your friend, uh, some Hebrew would, national would you like to have Hebrew national? And she says, well, he's not Hebrew. <laughs> That's right. Now, by the way, when I show that publicly, 
to groups, they never hear the last line because when they get to the Hebrew National, they laugh. Oh. So when it's over, I always have to repeat that tagline because oh, they never so hear it. Funny. It was so funny. And that's what you don't know when you start with kids. You have when she comes out of the audience and says, "I said, oh, you know who you want to marry? Uh, come on up here." Mm-hmm. I had no idea where that was going to go. Of course, clearly. of course. She was very articulate for a seven and a half year old and very captivating. And I, like, I like when she says, "He's small, but he's cute." He's cute, and he puts his finger <laughs> through his know, bread. You know, you're looking at a young lady when she gets older and gets married. She, if she, if she, if Mr. Webb becomes her husband, the young man she was talking yes. about, she's going to shape him up. I know. He's not going to stick his finger be, in through in, in through bread. His Wonder Bread. <laughs> I mean, that was so cute. What do you like about him? He's strong, and he sticks his finger through his Wonder Bread. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. No. It's a, I said so. Is he polite? And she said, yeah. "Hmm." <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> he says fresh things. Oh, so cute. How many but, years but, but did you do that show, Sonny? Uh, eight and a half years. Mm. And and I only left it because Channel 5 wanted me to start another show called The New Yorkers, which was going to be <laughs> two and a half hours live every day. Wow. But that was, I was not going to be alone. I was going to have a co-host and a musical component. There was going to be a talk variety show to dominate the afternoon. And I they said, but you have to leave one drama. And I said, well, why? You know, we want to make sure that people perceive you as an adult talent. And I said, well, I got a wife and four kids and a mortgage. Why don't we just try this for 13 weeks? I may, I may you know, you may hate me, I may hate you, right. uh, rather than me walking away from what is clearly a sinecure. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, you know, and I thought, okay, uh, one of my motifs in life has always been, if the door opens, you walk through it. Um, you know, you, you, new challenges keep you from getting stale. And truthfully, Wonderama was becoming sort of easy to do, even though I love doing it. So I thought, well, maybe this is the time to try a new challenge. Anyway, so that's why I left Wonderama. Okay. All right. I was going to ask you if you had a mantra. I like that. If the door opens, you walk through it. Oh, that's a motif in the book. And by the way, it's why it's the, the, that's why the title is the title, which is, But You Made the Front Page. Tell me about that. Well, <laughs> it's a line from my mother. <laughs> I was the vice president of children's programming in 1970s. And in, in, in 1977, CBS Inc. in its infinite wisdom decided that the metrics of the economy dictated knocking off 300 positions. And in going down the list, they figured out that they didn't really need a vice president children's program. So I was one of the ones who was closed out of of being employed, or otherwise known as fired. Um, The next day, the New York Post had this big, bold banner, full-page, front-page headline, bloodbath at NBC. And then they listed the more prominent people who had been fired. But they only had room on the front page for one name. Oh. Mine. Now I'm staring balefully at this, uh, balefully at this at my desk, and my assistant comes in and says, "Your mother's on the phone." Oh. Hi, Gert. What? She says, "Congratulations." I said, "What about?" She says, "I'm reading the New York Post." I said, "Ma, it says I got fired." But yeah, but you made the front page. <laughs> See, so but but here's uh. the thing. With that one statement, she turned a negative. She flipped it right over. That's right. Into a positive. That's right. And it struck me that that was a sort of the spirit of what's going on in this book. Because there have been failures, like being fired from the number one cause a show on the air on CBS. Let's take a trip. And I'm sorry, sixty-four thousand dollars challenge. Yes. Which you know was the big show, and 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 watched by forty million people a night. I got fired. Now you have to. And I and I knew when I took the job, and if you read the, in the book, you'll, you'll understand that I didn't want to do the show. I didn't think I was ready for it. Circumstances, however, dictated otherwise, and I was suddenly on this big show. And I had I had reached the level of my incompetence as a performer. I could not do that in a way that worked for them or for me. I had had no confidence. Uh, I had no, uh, they even stripped me of my name the first week. I mean, when I was to the pilot, I went out to dinner afterwards uh, with the VIPs, including Charlie Revson, who owned Revlon and who was the principal sponsor. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting next to him and he said, well, if you get the show, we're going to have to change your name. Why? I said, why? 
He said, well, nobody who's named Sonny, they'll never believe you're giving away all that money. <laughs> and in my smart-ass smart Brooklyn way, I said, well, Mr. Repson, for what you're going to pay me, you can call me anything you want. And uh, off I flew to California where I was going to do, because uh, I, I was doing Let's Take a Trip every day on, every Sunday on CBS, my, my uh, another kid's show, um, live remote every week, and we were going to do it from California, so I zapped out. And on Monday, the phone rang. And I heard this voice say, Bill Fox, please. And I said, sorry, you have the wrong room. And the voice said, don't hang up. This is your agent, and you have the job. I said, they're going to call me Bill Fox. They didn't even ask me what I wanted to be called. Right. So here I am getting on just actually six days later I was on the air. I mean, that's mm. how precipitate it was. And, uh, and the announcer intoned, and here's your host, Bill Fox. And the next week I got a call. From the producer saying, we have a problem about your name. I said, what? Hmm. He said, there already is a Bill Fox on the after rolls. Well, you didn't pick that name. <laughs> no. I said, you mean all these sponsors and agencies and CBS never checked the after rolls to see if it was okay? Yeah. And then the guy said, so what's your real name? Oh, come on. <laughs> I said, Erwin. Erwin. <laughs> there was, a, there was pause. a pause that went on for a beat too long, you know. I said, listen, I got a great idea. He said, what? I said, why don't you just change my name every week? And people that don't even like the show will tune in and say, what are they calling the I'm... schmuck this week? You know, you build <laughs> a new host. <laughs> so the next mm. week, I did the show, and the announcer intoned, and here's your host, Sonny Fox. Bill Fox disappeared. Never to be heard from again. <laughs> oh, funny. But I was stripped. That was symbolic of the show. They stripped me even of my name in the first week. I just had no support, no feeling of, of ownership of it. And I was faking it. I was trying to say, well, gee, what, was, what would a real host do? And, and so it, I never did that show competently. And finally, they, I, asked the, I, I asked the answer twice, once at the beginning and once at the end. Mm -hmm. And that, 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 you're not supposed to ask the answer. You're supposed to ask the question. Uh -huh. However, I was, invite, I was obviously inventing Jeopardy. Merv Griffin got rich. I got fired. There you go. But not fair. Not fair. <laughs> Tell me something. Do you have a let favorite? Me back, let me go back go for a minute to kids, though, okay? Yes, yes. Because I, there's something important I learned about children. There's some perceptions I want to share with your audience. Number one, kids are a lot smarter than you think they are and a lot more intuitive and know pretty much everything that's going on and things you think you're shielding them from, you're not. Just be aware of that. There's, there's a, I had kids fill out questionnaires before while they were standing in line to get into the studio. I hadn't met them yet. And then my assistant would bring me, and I'd flip through them quickly to see if there was anybody interesting there that I could sort of point at. And um, this one kid who I, who's, that's in the book, I, I kept these questionnaires. Some of the questionnaires I still have, as written by them. Um, so what's, the most thing, what's the thing that most annoys you about grown-ups? Anytime something interesting is about to start, my room gets dirty. Hmm. You understand what he's saying. They said, go clean up your room. Okay. Um, the point is, you say, go clean up the room because you know, this is not for you. They understand what you're saying. They, sure they it's very clear to them why this is going on. Hmm. That's number one. Number two, children have an incredibly rich interior life. And it's an interior life that's different than ours. Uh, Explain that a Isaac little Bashir, Isaac Bashir Singer has a wonderful um, uh, uh, thing about that. And, I, and you know, I, I can't repeat it word for word, but he says, I still believe in devils, witches, uh, God, you know, and other stuff. They are. They still listen to the voices of the dark that we forget to listen to growing up. And you talk to kids, for instance, about God, and I stumbled on this eight-year-old girl, perfectly charming eight-year-old girl, who said, well, I, see, I, I don't know what he looks like, but I see him every afternoon. I said, uh -huh. uh, in, your, in your mind? No, in heaven. Oh. I, 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 and she explained how she goes to heaven every afternoon in her bedroom, and you know, watching in her bedroom, to play with her dead grandmother, and also the Fergusons, by the way, are up there. <laughs> and this is a very straightforward recitation of a young child who is her doppelganger is her dead grandmother. Mm -hmm. Now, I bet you when she was telling me this, that's something that probably her parents didn't even know. Probably there not. Are, 
you know, they are so extraordinarily interesting to poke around in their minds. But you have to, you have to listen. And I would submit that the thing that uniquely defined Wonderama, there were many shows that amused and entertained kids very well. There have been many shows that have educated kids very well. I would submit that Wonderama was the show that listened to mm-hmm. kids better than any other show. Number one, we had four hours, so we had the time. And that's what you need. You need time to let the silences hang in the air. If you jump in as soon as the kid pauses with another question or comment, it won't work. But if you just keep patiently looking at the kid and waiting, often they will start up again. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. And that's when that's when the gold comes out. And but you have to also honor what they're saying, and not be derogative, and not be uh, look at them askance, but appreciate appreciate the unique um, interior life of a child. And I would encourage every parent and grandparent who happens to be listening to to take that take this very seriously because it it is it is an extraordinary aspect of being a child that we sometimes, especially today, for instance, when I say let the silences hang in the air, that doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't happen in the home and it doesn't happen on on television. Not only do we not have pauses, we suck the air out between the words for fear that somebody's going to go click and and whatever you're presenting is going to be switched off. So we we keep exploding things and have stuff going on and multiple things going on and the kids are watching what's in their hand and they're not looking around at what's around them. And so there are no silences. Right. And I, and I regret that. I think that's too bad that we are losing that. It's, and it's true. If you look at our campaign thing, with all all the inevitable ads that are there, and 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 you know, there's there's no air in the room anymore. Right. So I, I I regret that. But I learned. That's one of the things I learned, and I would like to pass along to your viewers. Take it seriously, please. That the kids are a rich source of insights that. If you have the time and you have the patience and you have the respect, you can you can find out extraordinary things. I have to say, and I've shared with you, I have two girls. Uh, they have the most incredibly creative minds, and a lot of times I'm you know I'm so busy, but when I stop and I listen, they have some great ideas. If you stop and listen to your kids or your friends' kids, they they are rich with imagination, which we don't really have. <laughs> It seems we lose our creativity and our ability to just stop and imagine and be open. Yeah. I mean, we're so busy with life and all that stuff, and we're so practical, and we know that all the fantasies we had as a child are just fantasies. So we sort of, you know, sterilize our lives as we go along to become adults. That's right. Uh, they don't. They, they're, they're still fed with all the, I mean, they still have this whole you know, a huge array of stuff going on in their minds. I love talking to kids about God, for instance. Now, kids don't deal in abstract. So God, for them, is not an abstract. For God to become real in their lives, they have to endow God with a very specific corpus. And they'll tell you how what his beard, his color is. And, how, mm-hmm. you know, I remember talking to some kids, and I said, well, how tall is God? And one young man said, five, eight. And the one behind him said, five, eleven and a half. I mean, that's how specific they are. And then I was saying to kids, when, and I have this on video too, uh, what makes you so sure God is a he? Because I kept saying he, 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 and you know, describing him as a man. I said, what makes you so sure God is a he? And this young 10-year-old face sort of tries to get his mind around that question and finally says, well, well, I mean, his name is God, and hmm. God can't be a girl's name. Interesting. Oh, that's funny, Sonny. Sonny, we're going to take a quick break. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Get the Funk Out. We'll be back more with Sonny Fox in just a moment. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Close your eyes for a moment. Now imagine you're away from it all. Beside a crystal clear mountain stream, the cool grass crunches underfoot. Take a deep breath and drink in the sound of water cascading over the stones as birds call out from above. A real paradise like this isn't easy to come by, but it does still exist. And with your help, places like this one can last forever. 
You see, the Nature Conservancy works locally with communities, businesses, and people like you to preserve the most precious natural places around the world. They protect the animals that live there, the plants that grow there, and even the water. That way, this beautiful place will be beautiful forever. And we'll make sure that closing your eyes will never be the only way to get there. I'm Paul Newman. Help the Nature Conservancy save the last great places. Visit the Nature Conservancy at nature.org. That's nature.org. Gas prices have been going up a lot lately, and they'll probably continue to. KUCI offers a few tips to help curb this burden. First, if you live close to your school or work, consider riding a bike. It's healthier for you and for the environment, and it can actually be a lot of fun. If that won't work for you, we recommend that you make sure your vehicle is as empty as possible. In other words, don't keep junk in your trunk. Any unnecessary weight can have a huge impact on your mileage over the long run. So considering the skyrocketing cost of gas, it's a great time to break the four-wheel habit. You'll get great exercise, increase your energy, and elevate your overall mood. Plus, it's great for the environment. And you'll never have to worry about getting stuck in traffic again and have a great parking spot. Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah it's pretty obvious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hey, hey, you're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine, and we are back with Sonny Fox. Hi, Sonny. Hi there. I want to talk about your book. Tell me the title of your book again. But You Made the Front Page, and the subtitle is Wonderama, Wonderful. Wars, and a Whole Bunch of Life. It's available, actually, you can, you can download okay. it, uh, or you can get it either in soft-covered or ebook version up at Amazon, Google, Barnes & Noble. You know, they're all up there. Wonderful. Now, we were talking offline. The theme of this show is get the funk out. People have been through ups and downs, crazy roller coaster ride in life that it is. Do you care to share, I know this is in the book, a little bit about how you have dealt with some ups and downs in your own life? Yeah, well, there's a leap motif, and it starts with the, you know, which is what I've explained about uh, the title, which was a comment on a failure, which is being fired. Um, and the leap motif really is how to fail without being a failure. And and that's tied in with taking risks. And one of the things that I speak about is my inclination to walk through doors and urging people to do that, take risks. But to do that, you have to be presumed, presumably armored against failure because risk-taking implies that there is a chance of not succeeding. And I have done that several times in my career. And Getting fired for $4,000 challenge is about as public a failure as one can have. Sure. You know, it, it was in the press, there were editorials, there were whole things about it. It was like the most important thing for a couple of weeks in the country um, because I had blown a, an important question a moment at uh, $64,000, at the $64,000 level. Or so so okay. I've had other failures, but none quite so dramatic and public as that one. Well, how do you walk away from that? What do you What do you do to, well, for one thing, I had still had my wife, I still had my four children, mm-hmm. I still had my other show. It was, the bottom hadn't dropped out of my life, just a portion of my life that was very exposed had turned out to be a failure. Okay, mm-hmm. it took me a while. For a while, I walked out on the street and thought everybody was looking at me. Sort mm-hmm. of schizophrenic, a little schizophrenic there. Right. But but I, I got over that. And what you still have to do is somewhere inside of yourself, and I think this happened to me growing up on the streets of Brooklyn way back when I was a wimpy kid and I, and I couldn't hit two sewers and I, I, I didn't have a friend and tried to commit suicide twice when I was 11. Uh, I couldn't even do that. That shows you how inept I was. Um, 
that you build up somewhere inside of yourself a kind of a core that keeps you standing up that says i i am who i am and i am not going to be defined by this thing that just happened yes. that is a circumstance that speaks to my inadequacy as that performer at that level in that milieu it doesn't de- it doesn't define me as a human being any more than driving the car i do or the house i live in does and that's also part of what i am i am not going to be defined by material things uh i am i, I you know self knowledge is pretty good mm-hmm. and the ability to in- embrace some of your failings and you know get on with it is fine too because you cannot you should not be able to walk away without learning something from any experience. And I did this in, in prison camp I, 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 when I was a POW in World War II. You, even there, I learned about myself. Even there, I learned who I was. So whatever it is, whatever you're doing, however unfortunate the situation is, see if you can't learn something about yourself uh, as you go through something about life something about society whatever it is that this is there's going to be a takeaway if you look for it That's that right. will maybe not soften the immediate effect of the failure or the disappointment but but give you some stepping off point to go on with your life That's great advice that's really great advice to find the meaning in your failures because it makes you grow Yeah yeah I think so. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, it could. It can. It, it hurts. Yes. And, you know, and then you have to take time to rebuild your confidence. I understand that, too. Right. But, it's not, but it's not the end of the world. It's, you are not a failure. So that's the point. You are not a failure. You failed in that particular episode of your life. That doesn't make you a failure. Any more than a resounding success defines your life as a success. Each one of those is a step to a life because in the end, and I speak as a man who has lived a long time, and I have lived, by the way, over a third of the history of this country. Mm. Even even looking back, you what you find it's it's not any single event in the in your life, but it's the journey that defines you. It is the journey that defines you. Remember that. Mm. Everything is a step along the way, and you will never know till you get to the end. And looking back, what it all means. When I sat down to write this book, I thought I no, I had lived every minute and every day and year of the life. I thought I knew what it was. I discovered so many things about my life looking at it whole that I hadn't realized living on it on a day by day basis. How long did it take you to write this book, Sonny? 87 years. No, I, um, I, I, it, it, probably over almost eight or nine years, but, but it did, I did in stages. I started writing what I thought maybe would be a family memoir, just chronologically. Mm-hmm. Got about halfway through it and stopped. I don't even know what I'm doing. And then mm-hmm. I finally, at the urging of a friend who had gone through this process successfully, finally took a course at UCLA on writing, memoir writing. It was a good course, but it didn't really affect my writing. What it did do is it refocused me to the point where I felt competent to move on with it. And, and then I did, it, did that and found an agent. So, so it, it, it took a long time, but I learned. And, you know, you go back, you have to rewrite, you have to re-rewrite. And, and, and then I started showing it to some people, just chapters at a time, people who I was were writing about at incidents that involved them. I would send them the chapters, say, have I misrepresented you? Or As a result of that, by the way, I have additions to the book written by other people. Oh, nice. uh, somebody who's a, uh, uh, was head of NBC News, uh, and I wrote something about something that happened to him, and he disagreed with my evaluation of Tom Snyder. I, I, I've got Tom Snyder and the Tomorrow Show started for NBC out here in L.A. back in 1970. 70s, and so I had a, you know dealt with Tom, and my take on Tom was different than Dick Walt's take, and he sent me a couple of paragraphs, about three paragraphs about that. I said, gee, can I use these in the book? And he said, sure. Yeah. So there is a different approach about evaluating Tom from him and from me, but that's fine. And I would, I embrace that. You know, I, as I say in the beginning of the book, anytime you read a memoir or an autobiography, you're depending upon the truths as perceived by the person who's writing it. And there may be other truths out there or other perceived truths about what happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have to be wary of the fact and, and take, you know, that I think it was Gore Vidal who said, anytime you 
talk about an event. You don't really talk about the original event. You really talk about the last time you talked about it. <laughs> and if that's the case, then little wrinkles come in and little embellishments come in, and then eventually your truth becomes somewhat different than other truths. I just ran into a friend of mine who had met, he was in the same prison camp, I didn't know him in the camp, but met subsequently, mm-hmm. and we piled around for a while. And then he dropped out of my life from about 1949 till this past June when I suddenly got an email from him. His perception of what happened to us after on our way to the prison camp was divergent than mine, but substantially. Mm-hmm. I finally had to refer him to a wonderful documentary done by Charlie Guggenheim because it happened to be the only prison camp that separated Jewish prisoners from non-Jewish prisoners. And there's a book subsequently about it, too, by Roger Cohen. So I said, read the book, look at the documentary. I finally had to begrudgingly admit that his perceptions were wrong, but they were his truths. Yes, yes. I mean, that's what happens, you know. I love the quote from Whoopi Goldberg, by the way, on your your book jacket. Uh, Sunday mornings as a kid meant two things. I had to go to church. I went to Catholic school, and I had to watch Sonny Fox and Wonderama. Many of us were given so much by Wonderama. Whoopi Goldberg, I love that. Now, what's wonderful about that first line about the church and watching Sonny Fox, it puts this skinny Jewish kid from Brooklyn on a parody with the whole Catholic Church. Right. How about that? Right. Uh, no, she was wonderful. She came over. She she co-hosted the she hosted the event at Paley Center a couple of weeks ago that celebrated the book, and I, I mean, I she was remarkable because she had been in Europe the week before. I just flown in Sunday night. Monday she came in and did not just one view, but then taped a second view for the next day with the president and Michelle, right. and so she was exhausted. And you know, she's not a kid anymore. Yes, and yet she showed up. 10 minutes before Wolf for the show. And we had never spoken. I had never met her but once, a few minutes, oh. 35 years ago. Okay. She came out of the woodwork because she so adored the show and it was so meaningful to her. So nice. And she showed up and she did this warm, wonderful, caring appearance with me, which was just, and then you want, you'd want to talk about how, how, you know, the show worked on kids. There's an example of it. And and that's it. You know, Harvey Weinstein wanted to be there. He couldn't be there. He also grew up watching the show. Billy Crystal at one point, he could make it, but then he's scheduled interview. But he grew up watching the show. So, But it's it's just uh, an amazing... But here's the other thing to take away from that. If we have been able to leave that kind of a thumbprint on a malleable, chi- on a, on a malleable mind of a child, that 45 years later has the same immediacy and potency. That's frightening to the extent that we then carelessly feed these children what we feed them. That's right. And that may be leaving the same kind of, you know, fingerprint on children. If if it has that lasting effect, shouldn't we be a little more careful, or perhaps even a lot more careful, about what it is that they're watching? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the quality of the show that was being put on at the time you were doing it was vastly different from what's out there now. Yeah, yeah yes and no. I mean, there's some great stuff going on now. The, the difference is, number one, the, the local host of a children's show, which was in every, in every major market and many, many lesser markets in the 60s, right. where we had four on one channel. Um, where we could relate directly to the kids. So I could say to my kids one, one, one time, come, we're going to clean up Central Park. And indeed, three weeks later, 15,000 kids in, with parents in tow looking stunned at 9 o'clock in the morning <laughs> were in Central Park and cleaned up Central Park. You know, that ability to reach out and, and, and have direct communication with and impel the kids to do something, and uh, that was great. And by the way, there are kids write me today saying that was, you know, that and I, we started carnival of muscular dystrophy in which I, working with the National Con- and, and Muscular Dystrophy people, the MDA, uh, we started this in New York asking kids to hold, you know, carnivals. And mm-hmm. they got posters and letters from me and Jerry Lewis and to do this. And it started in New York. And the kids were sending in checks for $13.80 and $18.46, oh. proudly. You know, they had races. And I was getting letters from mothers saying, I never knew my kid could do this. That's the other thing about kids. We underestimate yes. what they can do 
if they think it's serious and that they can accomplish something and see the result of what they have done. That's right. And that's something which we, we underestimate. That's right. Tell me a little bit more about the book. What do you want to know? It's, it's got uh, 24 pages of pictures. It covers my life from Flatbush and growing up in depression, uh, uh, you know, Brooklyn, and uh, and going through. I was brought up on the streets. I really was a street kid, as I realized now, riding. I had a loving family, but I really was brought up on the streets. And then meandering my way through, you know, I, I, and World War Two. I decided World War II was started just for the express purpose of getting me out of Brooklyn. <laughs> I knew it was going to be my ticket out of Brooklyn, and I was looking forward to it. And I walked out of, I walked down into the subway in October '43, and came back in December '45 from being in the infantry and being in battle and being in prison camp, an entirely different person. So that's one journey that that, that I took. And then the journey through this, you know, through through the the television industry, becoming chairman of the board of the Television Academy, and and then being involved for the last twenty five years on how to use the power of storytelling to change social and health outcomes in countries around the world, in Africa, and China, and South America, by using serial dramas to incorporate the storylines that deal with the issues that each culture needs to be dealt with and training the writers and the producers and directors in those countries to do that and and doing the research that shows how enormously effective the power of storytelling is in in modeling behavior and changing behavior and and I and I, I find I take great pride in that and ending up in the State Department being a correspondent uh, being a consultant for them with a with a co production with an Egyptian production company on a new drama out of Egypt for the Near East. It's been a remarkable journey. It's touched a lot of of bases. And the people Mm -hmm. I've I've worked with, they're doing a film with Shirley Harris and and having a Colin Dewhurst as a co-host and and, and working with the great composers of Broadway, Alan J. Lerner, doing shows with Alan J. Lerner and Kendra Neb and Yip Harburg, and then going back and doing, bringing out of the dust of bins where they've been thrown away pretty much the kinescopes of the original golden age of television shows, Marty and Requiem for a Heavyweight and Days of Wine and Roses, and meeting all the people and recording them in 25 years after they did it for the PBS series about what it was like to be in live te- what was live television like. So it, it's been a it's been an absolutely incredible journey out of a very unpromising start. I can't wait to read this book. I can't wait to read this book, Sonny. This is amazing. Well, I hope I hope a lot of people read it because I'm not. This is not seven ways to a better life. Let me tell you, yeah. and I'm not a writer in the sense that I cannot create out of nothing a wonderful world that writers can do. I'm a storyteller, and and I do narratives, and this is sort of that. But in there. You will have uh, Bob Ken- Bobby Kennedy, how I met him, and how he became a part of my life until he died, yeah. um, through Wonder Hour, actually, and and on. It, it you know it's a it's a better of the twentieth century. That's fantastic. And you just came back from New York and Connecticut. You were doing your book tour. Yeah, and doing book tours St. Louis, and now the Television Academy. I should mention this: the, te- the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences is giving me a, a, an evening on October 23rd here at their facilities in North Hollywood. But it's sold out, and it can only be an Academy member anyway right. to go. However, it will be live streamed, so if anybody wants to watch it on their computer, I believe you go up to METV yes. or ME.com. What I can't remember. What is it? What anyway? You can find it and send it to your people or tell them about it. But they I can will. watch it because there will be another interesting presentation of what's in the book. It's With clips. Well, I'll be showing clips, too. Oh, good. Oh, good. And where can people find out more about you? SunnyFoxTV.com? Or... Well, that's part of it. There's a If you go up to the METV uh, website... And they have an archive of interviews of many, many people. They have over 500, I think. And there's a three-hour interview they did with me a few years ago. So you can, you know, you go up to any TV archives, mm-hmm. slash archives, and then just go alphabetically to F, and then you'll see it, and then you can download it. Anybody can do that. Great. Yes, it is Emmys, E-M-M-Y-S dot TV. 
and then uh, there'll be information about your upcoming event October 23rd. It's right on the main page, and it, does, right. it is sold out, but uh, they can catch it streaming live. Right. So there it is. And, and so that's, that's the other way. Also, well, let me think where else there is. I don't know. There's, uh, I'll, I put, some, put Sonny Fox or Wonder Arm up there, and there's so, all, all kinds of stuff in the, in the Internet world that's out there. People have shown outtakes and things. I love it. Uh, I have decided I will, when I, I will never really die because there are going to be bits and pieces of me floating in hyperspace forever. <laughs> By the way, my brother-in-law was on your show. My brother-in-law, David, he might be listening, and uh, he loved being on your show, so he was thrilled. Uh, did, he, uh, did he win any prizes? Did, did he tell you about the prizes? I think he did. There, there is, there is a, the guy who, one of the two creators of Two and a Half Men, Lee Aronson, as a matter of fact, uh, his partner also, Chuck Lorre, mm-hmm. uh, both loved the show. But, but, but Lee was on the show, and he was telling me about how he came on the show to just, just to win prizes. <laughs> and, and it was so. He, I had him write his experience, and there's five pages written by this wonderful writer about his experience of being on Wonderama, which is almost worth the price of the book itself. I so it. I, you know, that's in there too. I love it, Sunny. Thank you so much for coming on today's show. It was a pleasure having you. And if anybody wants to email me after they write the book, read the book, and tell me what they think about it, I would love to hear from anybody. And I'll give you my email address right now. It's S Fox. S-F-O-X, at Sunny Fox Consultants, that's plural, dot com. And, you know, I'm, I'm not hiding. I, uh, I, I, I so enjoy hearing from my kids, who are now in their 50s and 60s, which I do regularly. Um, but anyway, I have enjoyed the visit. Thank you for letting me have so much time to yak away. It was wonderful. I enjoyed every minute. Uh, all right, Janine, take all right. care. All right, you be well, Sunny. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Sonny Fox, and uh, be sure to uh, take a peek at his latest book, But You Made the Front Page. I'm looking forward to reading it as well. Up next, Sheldon Abbott, Cure for the Blues. I'm your host, Janine. I'll be back here every Monday with Get the Funk Out. If you'd like to find out about being a guest on the show, it's very easy. Just send an email to Janine, that's J-A-N-E-A-N-E at K-U-C-I dot org. And if you missed any part of today's show, it'll be up on my blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. Have a great week, everyone. Blue is my favorite color. What's yours? What's yours? Red is my favorite color. What's yours? What's yours? Well, yeller's sweller for this little feller. And me, I'm keen on green. So what's your favorite color? Tell us, please. Kids will spend 20 minutes listening to songs like what's this. What's your favorite color? Tell us, please. What's your favorite color? What's your favorite color? What's your favorite color? What's your favorite How about two minutes to brush their teeth? Brushing for two minutes now can save your child from severe tooth pain later. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. Two minutes, twice a day. They have the time. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Mouths, Healthy Lives and the Ad Council.